Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Crypty. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating and tell all your friends, casual acquaintances, and even people you see on the street about Crypty. If you have a question, comment, case suggestion, or you think you'd be a good interview because of something paranormal, or you have a scary true story, email us at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. That's C-R-Y-P-T-I-Q-U-E podcast at gmail.com. Now for tonight's episode. Reincarnation, the rebirth of a soul into a new body. A person in whom a particular soul is believed to be reborn. This is the true story of the stunning life and times of an Indian girl named Shanti Devi. She convinced the world that she lived twice. She was born on December 11, 1926, in Delhi, India. At four years old, Shanti began spinning tales about her past life. She had amazingly accurate details about when she was alive before. The setting, a town about 80 miles away, a place she had never been to, at least not in this life. She had amazingly accurate detail about her past life, and Indian culture has an open mind about reincarnation, to say the least. This could be the case researchers into the topic had been waiting for. It seemed, at least to some, including Gandhi, that Shanti Devi was the real deal. The possibilities were endless, and she would go on to become famous the world over. Religion and philosophy have long discussed the possibility of souls, but it was the claims of a young girl named Shanti Devi from Delhi, India that made a rather convincing case for reincarnation in the 1930s. Religions almost across the board hold the belief that a human has a soul, from Native American religions to Christianity and most in between. But the Asian religions of Hinduism and Buddhism are particularly known for their belief in reincarnation. And Shanti made a strong case for just such a thing. Just when she was beginning to speak, Shanti wove tales to her parents about a past life and places she had never been to, places her parents had never been to. At this point, I think it's appropriate to discuss that some reports say that Shanti did not speak at all until she was four years old. So that's a little interesting. Yeah, that's something I've seen from a few sources as well, looking into this. When she finally spoke, she revealed that she was from someplace else and had these memories of another life. So that that's a claim I've seen other places. Just imagine if you had a kid and they started telling you, these sorts of things, you would think, oh, what a great imagination my kid has. The monster under the bed or random things that they kind of make up or things they get confused with something they saw on TV or read in a book or something like that. But she had uh, really riveting details that you could actually verify. Yeah, that's probably what sets most of these cases apart. I, I would assume when people first hear them, is that it's not something fantastic. Because I've heard kids say, you know, my dad is this and he's from Mars. And, you know, they come up with these fantastic stories about traveling through space and fighting monsters and things like that. You know, I had the pleasure of shuttling one of my friend's kids from 
you know, one family member to another because I happened to be going through the area and just let him tell me all these stories along the way. And it was a really amusing ride. But if he had told me something like, oh, my name is actually Mark and I was born in 1942 and I died on this date and here, you know, that's pretty different to describe a real world thing, a real town. You know, in this case, she was from uh, Mathura, Mathura, however you pronounce the name. But yeah, that, that she had this life and who her husband was and what his occupation was. It's really different. And I, I've heard cases as well of children playing with toys that maybe are modeled after World War II era military vehicles or things like that. And the child saying like, oh, I used to fly one of these and I know what this part is and that part is and things that they have no way of knowing at their age and given the time when these things happened. And it's something that maybe at first you might say, well, this is just a kid being a kid. And then when you find that they're actually right, it's probably pretty unsettling. And this was the 1930s, so it's not like she got online and figured things out from Google Maps and stuff like that. These were actually coming from from her brain or from her soul or however you want to look at it. Mundane, everyday occurrences would give rise to memories Shanti claimed were from a past life. She would tell her mother stories of the beautiful clothes she used to wear when they were getting dressed. At dinner, she'd recall memories of foods she'd once loved when she was an adult. She was nothing if not consistent and persistent. And I've never had Indian food. Have you ever had Indian food? I have. Yeah. Oddly, the only time I've had it, I was roped into being the groom. Here we go about you getting tied up again. In a, in a mock Indian wedding done during International Week at the college I went to. And uh, there was a reporter for the school paper who was going to be the bride. And I got recruited by an Indian girl I knew who was part of the ceremony and part of this sort of Indian cultural club that kind of, you know, they, they put on these events just so you would get to know the culture. And it was pretty cool. That seems yeah. really cool. And I was part of this wedding that was in front of a lot of people in the main, you know, sort of center of the university. And then after that, every Indian student seemed to know who I was <laughs> and would feed me and invite me places. <laughs> so that's really the only time I've had it. I, I don't really know of any other Indian restaurants or anything. So all I've had was pretty much home cooked stuff, but it's pretty good. I'll have to get that's definitely on my bucket list. I'll have to give it a shot, but I don't like spicy foods and I hear it's kind of spicy. Some of it. Yeah. And I do like spicy stuff. So I was cool with it. Well, I can imagine, you know, my kids being like, oh, I really like Golden Puffs because they saw a commercial for it on TV or something like that. But I can't imagine my four year old, you know, saying something like I really enjoy chicken cacciatore. It's delicious. You know, and I'm assuming that in the 1930s in India, they're probably she wasn't talking about enjoying, you know, honey smacks or Cheerios or Frosted Flakes. I'm sure it was some sort of, uh, you know, adult type food that she was speaking. Of. Mm. And at that time, probably the availability of food varied by region. You know, you might not get fresh seafood if you're not, you know, closer to a coast or, you know, you might not get certain produce unless you're near where that grew. That's a very good point. Before 
refrigerated trucks delivered everything and you know again it's india so it's hot shanti revealed that in her past life she was known as lugdi she passed away in 1925 after giving birth to her son in october of that year she spoke about terrible labor pains and invasive surgeries she endured in stunning detail things a child could never know now I, I have a 10-year-old and a 13-year-old daughter, and they know what labor pains are, but I can't imagine a 4- or 5-year-old even talking about labor pains and certainly not any kind of surgery. Right. Yeah, my my research shows that Lugdi went through two cesareans. One was stillborn, the second one survived, but that was sort of ultimately what killed her. She developed some sort of condition, infection, something like that. It's not entirely clear and passed away from that. But yeah, to know that that's a thing. First off, to know where babies come from at that age, to understand that it's painful and then to understand that there are procedures to help that along. Right. Yeah, very much out of the realm of what a child should know at that age. When she revealed the name of her former husband, Devi's family was shocked to discover that he was still alive and lived precisely where Debbie had said she was from. An historic meeting was arranged between them that not even science could quite explain. At the tender age of nine, she revealed the name of Lugdi's husband. Lugdi, again, was her former name. Pandit Kedarnath Chobe. She also said he was sometimes called Kedar. A family friend decided to get some answers. The family would soon be floored by the fact that he was still alive and right where Shanti said he would be, in her original hometown of Mathura. She told her family he was a merchant. He had light skin, a wart on his left cheek, and wore glasses. So those are not uh, unspecific details. That's very specific and obviously very verifiable. And so it was that a friend of the family sent a letter to the merchant known as Kedar in Mathura to corroborate the stories of a young girl now named Shanti Devi. Nobody expected any results, but to their surprise, the man responded and confirmed all of the details Shanti had revealed. I just can't imagine what it would be like as a parent to have a child not, you know, just say that she had been reincarnated, especially in a religion that definitely embraces reincarnation and, in fact, believes fully in reincarnation, that her husband had this name, he was in this city, this is what he looked like, he had a ward on his left cheek, and have it all be accurate. It would be mind-blowing. Yeah, I would be pretty freaked out by it. I wouldn't know what to think or what they wanted or what this meant, if it was real, if it was some kind of scam. But there is a, a culture difference as well. Kedar agreed to send a relative to see Shanti and her family and get a feel for the girl and her legitimacy. All right, so he receives a letter. And in the letter, I'm assuming that it gives all these details and of course even if you believe in reincarnation you would be a little hesitant 
and taken aback to hear this kind of stuff. I mean, just imagine if you got a letter and this family said, hey, we have a little girl and she says she knows you. You were her husband. You look like this and tell you all of these details. I I mean, I would just be floored to hear something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would be very strange, probably for everybody involved. I I would think probably some sort of scam, but, you know, that's kind of the world we live in now. I think people relied more on honesty in, in years past more than they do now. It seems like we're a little skeptical and we think everybody's got an angle, mostly because everybody has an angle. An effort was made to fool Shanti, and the relative introduced himself as her husband, but she called the bluff and said this was her husband's cousin. So he sends his cousin, and she's like, nope, I know who you are. And then the moment of truth. Kedar came into the room with their 10-year-old child, and Shanti burst into tears. When Kedar spoke to Shanti alone, he admitted all of the answers to his questions were answered correctly. Imagine if, first off, you're this man, and then you hear this story, and you're like, okay, well, I'm going to try and fool her, and we'll put an end to all this, and she calls you out on your bluff, and then you have to tell your 10-year-old child, this might be your reincarnated mother. He found the replies to be quite correct and was moved to tears, according to an investigator on the case in 1937. It was as though his dead wife was speaking. Shanti remained in the company of Kedar and his son, and her son, for a few days before returning home, and after the visit was over, she begged her parents to let her plan a trip to her former home. She told her parents she could guide them to her former home and persuaded them that she had a box of money buried there. I'm assuming that that her family probably didn't have a lot of money, and, I mean, let's be honest, if somebody told me, hey, there's a box of money buried here, I'd probably say, let's go dig it up. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And so you've been right about everything so far. Let's uh, roll the dice on this. Right. Let's go get that money. So in 1935, Mahatma Gandhi sent 15 parliamentarians, media members, and national leaders to investigate the case of Shanti Devi. In addition to forming a commission to investigate her case, Gandhi invited nine year old Shanti Devi to his seminary in central India. And in November of 1935, a dozen researchers joined Devi and her parents on the three-hour train ride to Mathura. I don't know exactly what trains looked like in 1935, but I have seen a lot of video on what trains in India look like nowadays. And there's people holding on to the side of the train as they go because it's so overpopulated that they can't get enough people to fit into the train. Just throwing that out there, a three-hour train ride in India would be awful. And yeah, I've heard there are trains like that where people hang on that can be 30, 40 hours, depending on where you're going, because it's such a massive country. Yeah, I have no interest in in doing that. Um, I would At that point, I'd be like, how much money was in that box? I mean, if it's like 20 bucks, I'm staying home. Yeah. What's my hourly what's my hourly rate for doing this? How much is it worth to hold on to the side of this train? <laughs> 
Hey Cryptique fans, don't forget to check out Exploring Evil. It's the black sheep of our podcast family. It's a true crime podcast about lesser known serial killers and a lot of the stories have a paranormal twist. Check it out on Apple, Google, Spotify, and of course, Anchor Podcasts. As promised, Debbie had no problem directing the group to what she claimed was her former home, and she even pointed out various streets that hadn't been paved earlier and buildings that weren't there during her previous life. The driver confirmed these observations were correct. Imagine as a driver, you know, you're probably like, whatever, I'm just going to get this fare or whatever, this money for driving this girl, and then she starts to convince you. And it kind of seems like the ripple effect, like, you know, she starts with her parents and then that spreads a little bit. And then other people are kind of probably a little skeptical and then they get convinced and then it just keeps spreading out and out. And more and more people are finding her, you know, authentic and believable. Yeah. It's something everybody wants to believe in anyway, or or at least wants to understand. There's so much to suggest that our understanding of the world is incomplete at best, that to get a a more complete picture of somebody who remembers the other side, you know, just anything beyond our ordinary experience is going to attract so many people and so much attention. And I know that most people see religions as, at least a lot of religions, as mutually exclusive. Like if Jesus was real, then everything in Hinduism has to be fake. Or if Hinduism is real, everything the Muslims believe can't be true. And personally, I don't, I don't see the world that way. I can't comprehend the thought that just because one religion believes one thing and another believes another thing, why they can't necessarily coexist. And A lot of people believe religion is whatever you believe it is. Some people don't believe the truth really matters as long as you believe, and that belief is more powerful than fact, I guess. You have opinion on that? Yeah, I think it it could be a mix. Growing up where I did, I went to a Catholic grade school. So part of the day was a religion class. And I remember learning that, and I've, I've had other people contest this and say this is not true. But what I what we were told was that Judaism, Islam, and Christianity believe in the same God, that they have the same general beliefs. It just diverges in terms of sort of the central figures each one focuses on. The overall concept is fairly similar. And what it makes me wonder is whether or not each religion is only seeing a small aspect of a greater picture that Buddhism was inspired by an event that was part of the same sort of cosmic clockwork that's always happening. And then Hinduism was inspired by something else and Christianity was inspired by Jesus, which is part of some larger picture. And then Islam by Muhammad. I do think that what you expect And your faith or your will has something to do with what you experience. Just the same way that if you have a placebo, you might experience a a medical impact because you believe that you've had 
treatment or haven't had a treatment or, or whatever effect you're going for. And the same way that relieving stress, you know, it's an emotional thing can have an impact on your health. So why not an impact on your experience or where you go, or maybe, you know, your, your experience is based on sort of who you're surrounded by, you know, who's to say if there isn't a pearly gate that you go to, that they don't sort you by, Oh, you believe this stuff. We'll put you over here with other people to believe that. So it's kind of you, you, you're first dropped off with the people who are most like you. Yeah. I, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. I could see that. And unfortunately, it seems to me that organized religion has a lot to gain by, by discrediting other religion. Yeah, it's, uh, this is probably the movie Hal host and me talking, but it's a little bit like the line from Pirates of Silicon Valley that's attributed to the character of Bill Gates in that. I don't know if it's a quote that he ever actually said, but he's talking about producing the things that they're trying to produce when they're starting Microsoft. And he said, it's our job to convince them that they have a problem and that we're the only ones with the answer. Shanti frantically searched for the money she had buried under the floorboards after the coffee can was found to be empty. Kedar reluctantly admitted he had found the coffee can and taken the cash after his wife's passing. Now that's how it was written. I don't know why he would reluctantly admit it because if I had money stashed in the house somewhere and I died, I would want my wife to find it as soon as possible. It's kind of put in a way that he was almost embarrassed about it or ashamed of it, but I, I don't know why it would be. But maybe it's just meant to be that he was like, yeah, that's true too. Like just another fact that points to her story being real. So that's just a, another thing. And it points to what she told her parents was true. And that would suck if you were on a three hour train ride hanging on to the outside of a train, hoping to get some money. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I spent it. Sorry, guys. Debbie's reunion tour of Mathura continued to her former parents' house. She not only recognized it, but was able to identify her old father and mother in a crowd of more than 50 people. The girl embraced her parents, who wept bitterly at her sight. I don't know. I think there's definitely, obviously, a special bond between girlfriend and boyfriend, husband and wife, but I think your parents see you a little bit deeper than how other people see you. And I think, you know, going back to the Black Eyed Kids episode, there's a lot you can see in someone's eyes. And when you make eye contact with someone, I think you do have a special connection. And the way I'm seeing this research is that her parents saw her for who they believed she truly was, which was their daughter. And they could see it, you know, in her eyes and her soul. And you agree. I, yeah, I do. I think as a parent or close family member, there are even beyond, you know, the, the sort of spiritual connection that you have that allows parents to kind of sense when something's going on. There's so many stories of parents knowing in the middle of the night that something's wrong with their kid or a friend of mine who just woke up in the middle of the night and knew that his brother was in a car accident. You know, I think you would know the behaviors and mannerisms, you know, I'm sure that I 
hold my hands in a particular way or move my mouth in a particular way that a family member would recognize, even if it was on somebody else's face. The same way that if my behavior suddenly changed, I'm sure things would seem very off to the people who knew me. And especially the mother, I think, you know, that person was born inside you and they have a, an even more special bond than a father would with his child. Some of it, I'm sure, too, is, I guess, to go against the evidence is obviously you would want to believe. You would want to believe like, oh, this is my daughter. She's back. You know, I get to hold her again. Yeah, that's true. That could be very, it could be a factor helping to persuade them to at least behave as though that is their daughter. Although she wanted to stay in Mathura, Devi's parents and the investigators soon headed back to Delhi. The commission mentioned founded, quote, no rational explanation for what they witnessed. So they're convinced, for the most part. Uh, they at least are willing to admit that it is what we like to call paranormal or supernatural, that it's something that science can't explain. Now we're going to talk about Shanti's experience in the afterlife, because this is what everybody wants to hear about. What happens when you die? So her experience in the afterlife. Shanti Devi never married and lived with her parents until her death. Not only was Devi able to recall her life before, but she also had an explanation about the afterlife. She relayed her experience in death to skeptics and hypnotists alike. She claimed that at the time of her death, she felt dizzy and enveloped in what she called a profound darkness, before a flash of light revealed four men in yellow clothing before her. She said, All four seemed to be in their teens, and their appearance and dress were very bright. They put me in a cup and carried me. They put me in a cup and carried me stood out a little bit because I don't know if she's being literal and maybe she just doesn't have the words to describe what she was put in or um, if there is a cup that is like sacred to Hindus that maybe that's what she's referring to. Do you know anything about that? I don't. I kind of assume this might be a translation problem. The cup seems right, but yeah, I mean, I'm imagining like a chip from Beauty and the Beast and they're putting a person in it. That's funny. That's that's what I imagine, too. But I, I don't think that's what she's getting at. But it probably is a translation problem. And obviously, in English, we have many words for cup like a, or a, yeah, some sort of vessel. Yeah, vessels, a good term. Debbie said she saw the Hindu god Krishna showing each person a record of their good and bad activities on earth and telling them what would happen to them next. So, if you believe this whole thing, you're getting a judgment. So, be kind, be nice to people, be good to animals, try and do the right thing, and always admit mistakes and apologize whenever you can because... If you believe this or you believe in another organized religion, judgment will fall upon you at some point. Yeah, one of the most interesting books I've read from that perspective was actually uh, one of the Anne Rice books. It was Memnock the Devil, and it describes 
you know, you've read those books. It's the interview with the vampire series. They've made movies of some of them. The first one does follow the books pretty well. The rest are kind of out there a little bit. Well, the truth is out there. Yeah, it's true. But this one is about Lestat, who is a vampire who's a couple hundred years old at this point, encountering, instead of other vampires, a celestial being and kind of learning about the workings of heaven and hell and what the purpose of them in and the essentially it boils down to that the torture experienced in hell is you reliving the worst things you did to try to learn from them. And you have to accept whatever it is that you did, like come to terms with it. And that the people who are stuck there the longest and have the hardest time are the people who just kind of cross their arms like, Nope, Nope. I did the right thing. That was, you know, this person deserved it. I'm not, I'm not apologizing. I'm not accepting any fault or any blame. And it was, it was really interesting just from that perspective. It was uh, more than I expected out of a, out of kind of a silly book about vampires. Well, that's what makes a good book really. Uh, You know, sometimes the peripherals are the vampires and the lesson is what's important. Then, Debbie said she was taken to a golden staircase from which she could see a river as, quote, clean and pure as milk, which is in stark contrast to the Ganges River where Indians worship and bathe in. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. She said she saw souls there and they appeared like flames and lamps. So that's interesting. A 1958 newspaper interview followed up with her. At the time, Shanti Devi was 32 years old and had never married. She was living a quiet, spiritual life in Delhi. I have to wonder if she didn't get married and didn't have a family and things like that because my wife and I are soulmates. And no, I don't think I could be happy with somebody else. And... I just wonder if that's how she felt like, you know, Kedar was her soulmate and there wasn't a whole lot of information on their interactions later in life, just that she went on, you know, to not be married and not have a family. And at the time, she also said that she'd planned to form an organization, quote, devoted to the idea of living our lives according to the dictates of the inner voice. That's an interesting motto, an interesting thing to strive for. I wonder what that means exactly. Along with what you said about her not having married, I did find a reference in an article from Venture Inward magazine from 1997 that in part of her conversation with her previous husband, she asked why he remarried, you know, and the quote was, she said something like, did we not agree to not remarry? So they apparently had had that conversation, you know, if one of them passed before the other, what was their plan? But she was very young when she died. I think she was in her mid twenties based on the timeline I saw. And she was only, I think about 10 when she was promised to marry this guy. Yeah. And then as far as the inner voice goes, I've, have you ever heard of the Damon? I don't know a lot about it. It's something I've heard in other podcasts and stories. And it's it's a concept of essentially what is part of you and part of your soul, but helping to guide you in this life from the other side. 
So in one podcast I listened to where they were talking about this concept, they said, imagine it, it's like you're the video game character and the daemon is sort of the player who's on the other side. You know, that player may be able to see a more complete picture and understand the things that are around you that you can't see from your perspective. You know, you're the character, you have some autonomy, but they also have some control, you know, but it's all you, you know, so, so in some ways it's, you know, the inner voice that tells you, you know, don't go there, be careful when you go around this corner, you know, these little bits of intuition that you get might come from this, this daemon. That's very, very interesting. Something I'll definitely have to look into. That's pretty cool. In any case, Shanti Devi passed away in 1987 at the age of 61. However, her story lives on and on again and perhaps on again. Well, that's going to do it for us. We hope you enjoyed the story of the girl who lived twice. Well, at least twice. We're keeping an eye out to see if she pops up again somewhere, and we'll keep you informed. Remember to tell all your friends about the show and email us at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe and leave us a five-star rating. See you next time on Cryptique.